Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Tonight on The Readout. As Dr. King said, give us the ballot and we will place judges on the bench who will do justly. We do not seek to judge people by the color of their skin, but rather the content of their character. Everybody's quoting Dr. King. But for what purpose? For those on the right, it's usually to lie about the meaning of his words, such as that anything that helps non-white people or gives them a fighting chance against systemic racism is itself racist. Also tonight, George Santos claimed that not only was he a collegiate volleyball star, he said he had to get both knees replaced as a result. Those are the silly lies. But there are also serious new questions about alleged links to a sanctioned Russian oligarch and a company accused of fraud. Plus, the Obama and Trump administrations ended very differently, which goes a long way to explain why the Trump and Biden classified document investigations are so very different. The first, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day from New Orleans, one of my all-time favorite cities, where we begin with the hard-fought and hard-won holiday celebrating King's life and legacy. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. transformed the nation, the way we think, the way we protest, the ways in which we commit and recommit to the promise of America. It was he, alongside his wife, Coretta Scott King, who led a black voting rights march from Selma, Alabama, to the state capitol in Montgomery in 1965. That fight for voting rights and equality continues today. It's also the day we witness, with dismay, the tradition of Republicans misusing MLK's message by tweeting the one quote they know, the one from his I Have a Dream speech two years before Selma in 1963, challenging America to judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The speech also challenged America on its racism, segregation, and poverty, and the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. But the Republicans don't quote that part. Doubtful they've even ever read the entire speech. Now, some may think that those tweets are a newer phenomenon, another example of glaring hypocrisy by the American right. But the distortion of MLK's message has been going on for nearly 40 years. It was President Reagan who popularized the tactic of co-opting Dr. King's philosophy of a colorblind society to advance his assault on racial progress. Reagan got elected just 12 years after King's assassination, he prioritized dismantling the federal voting rights and anti-poverty programs that King fought under two presidents to achieve. Even quoting King while attacking affirmative action as he weakened the enforcement of civil rights laws. With the help of his legal team that included a young Republican lawyer named John Roberts, now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, it was Reagan who signed the King Holiday Bill into law back in 1983, though he didn't initially support the holiday. When you look at Reagan's record on race, it is easy to see why. 
Reagan opposed every major piece of civil rights legislation adopted by Congress. He even called the Voting Rights Act of 1965 humiliating to the South, launching his 1980 presidential campaign from Philadelphia, Mississippi, where civil rights heroes Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney were murdered by white nationalists. But after a few years, and as support for the holiday gained momentum, Reagan dramatically changed his tune about the MLK holiday, signing it into law in the presence of Coretta Scott King, the architect of the King legacy, who fought for the holiday for 15 years. The law came with advantages, not for the country or for people of color, but for Reagan, by pacifying his critics. And as the Boston Review described, to advance the anti-Black crusade he had waged since the 1960s, now under the alluring mantle of colorblindness. It's exactly what we're seeing today. Republicans invoking the words of MLK to support conservative policies, which is why you're seeing folks like Ron DeSantis quoting MLK today, as well as when he proposed a bill that prevents teachers from discussing race, sex, and American history in the classroom. Ditto on Republican Chip Roy, who also quoted MLK today, but voted against a bill, get this, to make lynching a federal hate crime. Or Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who tweeted about how King's spirit and legacy motivate us today. While a school board in his state bans 21 books from its high school library, including four by Toni Morrison. The list just goes on and on. Hashtag MLK by Republicans hell-bent on blocking police reform and access to the ballot box, which helps to empower conservative groups like Moms for Liberty, who are harassing educators and librarians to ban books about Dr. King, Rosa Parks, and Ruby Bridges, and claiming without a hint of irony that Dr. King would have wanted it that way. Joining me now is the Reverend Al Sharpton, host of MSNBC's Politics Nation, who joined President Biden today at the National Action Network's annual MLK Day Breakfast, and Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University, both my friends, and I appreciate you both for being here. Happy MLK Day to both of you. And uh, Rev, my, my wonderful big brother, I have to show you this. I, I don't. You were busy today doing um, um, events with the president, and so you might have missed what the Bangor Daily News did today on MLK Day. We'll put a screenshot of it up. They they po- they posted parts of of the their favorite speech, the 1963 March on Washington speech, and their headline of it of their op-ed was "We should take a step away from our divisive politics and recall the defining speech." But what they did is they redlined out more than half of the speech and only put up the parts that promote the agenda they want. They took out these are some of the lines they took out. On poverty, which was a major part of the King's speech in 63, 100 years later, the Negro still lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. They took out the part on systemic racism. They took out the part of that 63 speech. It says America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. And they took out the part about police brutality where they said we can net where he said we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. Your thoughts. Well, when you look at the fact that those that are misquoting Dr. King today are the ones threatening with the uh, nation's debt uh, coming up, saying let's look at entitlement programs, programs that Dr. King and uh, his whole generation of civil rights leaders fought to get, like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and other entitlement programs. Uh, When you look at the fact that not only did uh, they take out uh, the part that you quoted, 
uh, about insufficient funds. He talked about how uh, it bounced in the Bank of Justice, where they're about to, ba- to bounce uh, the, the nation's debt. And let's not forget, Ronald Reagan did not only oppose all of the civil rights laws uh, that was presented at that time. Ronald Reagan had called Dr. King a communist. And Dr. King was red-baited for many years by the right wing that now red-baits many of us that operate in his, in his legacy. That is why Nash Action Network every year tries to take back those that seek to kidnap Dr. King and Martin Luther King III and Andre King. And I have done this every year and have called for a new march on Washington this August, the 60th anniversary around the hate crimes and around the poverty line. We'll see who shows up at the march that showed up misquoting Dr. King on the holiday they never intended for us to have. Yeah, you know, what's so interesting, kidnapping is such, I think, an appropriate word, Christina, because, you know, the fact that people like Ron DeSantis are literally quoting King in order to ban the teaching of racial history, which would include the teaching about what Dr. King was fighting for, the fact that he was surveilled by the FBI and harassed uh, in an attempt to get him to kill himself, the fact that he was deeply unpopular, there, this, this sort of you know, Muppetization of King makes no sense. He looked 63 percent disapproval rates when he was alive. He was absolutely hated, you know, but they're sort of trying to turn him into some sort of crusader for getting rid of any programs that would help people of color. We have to remember, you know, partly in many ways, walking around the or, and, you know, we have to remember, Joy, the March on Washington, we oftentimes shorten it. It's March on Washington, job and freedom. Dr. King was very explicit that this isn't just about racial justice, equity, it's about an economic justice. And when he started mobilizing, not just African Americans, but poor whites, whites in the South, you know, other immigrant groups to help them understand that they are being captured by the Republican Party. They are be, they're given bad checks as well. This is when the Republican Party really sees you know, Dr. King as, as a super threat. And this is obviously when he's assassinated in 1968. And we have Representative John Conyers, who brings up the idea of a King holiday from 1968 to 1983 until it's passed. It is consistently voted down every single legislative session. Sometimes it couldn't even get out of committee. So this, as you say, the Muppetization, I mean, this false narrative that, you know, the Republican Party has been in love with Dr. King and they believe in his words, the cherry picking of his legacy when he understood this idea that we will never be free until we help emancipate all people in this country, especially black people, but all people who were living under the thumb of patriarchy, anti-black racism, white supremacy, and capitalism. And that's a larger message of Dr. King that Republicans absolutely don't want to address. And they're doing their best to try and ignore the real reality of so many of his writings and teachings and just give these quick little anecdotes and and sentences uh, that, you know, uh, fit their agenda. You know, it's so interesting, you know, Rev, as somebody who yourself was very young when you began, I mean, nine, you know, when you began your activism. I mean, I think about it today. If Dr. King were right now alive and he were the same age he was when he reached the peak of his activism, or actually when he died, he was 39. That's younger than Kobe Bryant was when he died. He would have been a millennial <laughs> if he were alive today at the same age that he was doing his activism. This was a very young guy and, and, and a young man who was pushing for progress against 
the grain of all of American society that was saying, slow down, don't ask for voting rights, don't ask for too much integration, just let things happen quietly. And it's just, to me, ironic that the people who are co-opting his legacy are also doing things like this. They're saying young people like Dr. King and younger than him should not be able to learn about Martin Luther King Jr. in school. They shouldn't be able to learn about Rosa Parks because in Pennsylvania because they think it would make white children feel uncomfortable or feel sad. Right-wing groups Moms for Liberty wants Tennessee's critical race theory law to ban a book about Dr. King. So you can't quote him and then say you can't learn about him. Well, one of the reasons they don't want him to learn is because many of those that we see in these white supremacist groups are young people, uh, young whites. Um, look at those that are, are standing on trial for January 6th. A lot of them are young whites, and they will never know the truth of Dr. King or the truth of that movement. Dr. King was killed before he was 40 years old. Malcolm X was killed before he was 40 years old. Medgar Evers was killed before he was 40 years old. So it wasn't just Dr. King. It was the appetite of white supremacists in that generation that would kill you or be involved in the conspiracies that led to your death or that tried to stop the civil rights movement that, again, they had tried to kidnap and reinterpret their way, like Dr. King was sitting on the side of a mountain, a poet, just dreaming. He was an activist that transformed this country by transforming it by changing the laws. Voting Rights Act of 65, vote, Civil Rights Act of 64, Open Housing Act of 68. He changed the laws and they're trying to go back and redo those laws and take them off the books. We that are really in the spirit of Dr. King shouldn't take the day off. We should take it on to preserve the laws that he put in the books and to add laws that will cement them uh, for all times in terms of this American uh, culture that we live in. Amen. And, you know, Christina, it's it's interesting that it's the same, you know, Reagan, this, this is 12 years after King, you know, was killed. You know, these were the folks who were standing in favor of the apartheid government in South Africa, not against it, you know, in favor of continuing a version of American apartheid here. And there's an attempt, I think, to restore a past that didn't happen, right, to create a king that didn't exist in order to justify going back to that era because it was more comfortable for some folks in this country. It's it's quite ironic. Yeah, I mean, Joy, I think it was really important that you mentioned, you know, Reagan launching his presidential bid in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the site where, you know, three civil rights workers were, were murdered. I mean, we also have to remember Dr. King was assassinated. You know, a lot of Republicans like to say, you know, well, he died. He didn't die of old age. He didn't die of cancer. He was assassinated by white supremacists. And so when we, you know, zoom out 30,000 feet and we look at the systemic ways that so many Republicans are trying to roll back the legacy of Dr. King, it is it's beyond frightening because black history is American history. And so if you're trying to deny all school children, not just African-American, but if you're trying to deny white children the history of their own nation, they should feel enraged. Parents should feel enraged that their children don't know the full history of the civil rights movement, that they don't know the full narrative of the Voting Rights Act of 64 and the or of 65 and the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Immigration Act of 1965 and how those three are triumvirate of acts and how Republicans are trying to destroy all three. So if you don't know about black people in this country, you don't know about this country. You know, I have Shirley Chisholm uh, right behind yeah. me. You know, it's, it's one of those things where 
We shouldn't be the only ones who know the greatness of Shirley Chisholm. New Yorkers shouldn't be the only ones who know the greatness of Shirley <laughs> right. Chisholm. You know, white people should feel enraged that they weren't taught about Shirley Chisholm or her presidential run in their own schools. And so I, I think going back to Reb's point, yeah. you know, the fact that so many institutions are trying to take out not just books, but even Dr. Seuss, because young people are putting two and two together and <laughs> understanding the real history of this nation and their parents are the ones who are afraid, not the kids. Absolutely. And if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, I think what alarmed a lot of folks is a lot of those people marching out there were young white people as well. And I think that shook a lot of folks up. Uh, uh, Thank you, the Reverend Al Sharpton and Christina Greer. Thank you both very much. And up next on the readout, deeper ties than previously known. New reporting on George Santos's alleged links to a Russian oligarch and a business that the SEC called a classic Ponzi scheme. You can't make this stuff up. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Okay, at this point, we know George Santos is a prolific liar. But we're now learning that his proclivity for lying was not a state secret to Republicans working on his campaign or to some Republicans working to win the majority in the House. Last Friday, we got some really interesting new reporting about just how much they knew. First, the New York Times discovered that Santos's campaign conducted their own background check, or a vulnerability study, as they call it. And what they found was so disturbing that they urged him to drop out of the race a year before the election. That internal background check uncovered almost everything we now know. His lies about academic degrees, his involvement in a firm accused of a Ponzi scheme, evictions, and a fraudulent marriage that may have been done for the purpose of getting the Brazilian woman citizenship. The Times also reported that a close ally to Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who's in charge of a super PAC that helps fund GOP House candidates, was well aware of the fact that Santos was a phony. In fact, sources told The Times that his this person confided in lawmakers, donors, and other associates that he was worried information would come out exposing Mr. Santos as a fraud. Which Speaker McCarthy, who endorsed Santos in the Republican primary, was asked about and didn't outright deny knowing. Given any indication that there might be something amiss there? On which part? Any of it. I never know all about his resume or not, but I always had a few questions about it. That begs the question. If Kevin had questions about it then, why didn't we hear about them? But I suspect we know the answer to that. One big question remains largely unanswered. Who helped fund Santos' successful campaign? Last week, Mother Jones said shed some light on that when they reported that his sister and his campaign treasurer may have been running a shell game 
to help fund his campaign. Well, today, the Washington Post uncovered another interesting nugget. Businessman Andrew Intrader, cousin to sanctioned Russian oligarch Victor Vexelberg, gave Santos nearly $6,000 and funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars into that Ponzi scheming company that Santos used to work for. Santos has denied any wrongdoing while working for that company. Intrader is a U.S. citizen. His company has had extensive ties to the business interests of his Russian cousin. He also donated heavily to Trump's inaugural committee. Neither Santos nor Intrader responded to the Washington Post's request for comment. And joining me now is former Republican congressman and former advisor to the House the House January 6th committee, Denver Riggleman. Uh, Congressman, it, it just gets weirder and weirder and more odd, right? Because this is a guy who, Kevin McCarthy, he, he raised money for him. Let me just read a little bit from the New York Times. McCarthy, who ultimately endorsed Mr. Santos and helped his campaign, has said relatively little about the fabrications. He's refused calls to try to oust him from the House as Speaker as he seeks to maintain an exceedingly narrow majority in Washington. Despite the financial resources that he helped marshal in the race, McCarthy had good reason to be wary of Santos. One of the reasons he had to be wary is that one of Santos's aides had impersonated one of his aides. And yet, you have McCarthy's leadership pack giving him $10,000. You have at least Stefanik's aide being aware of his issues but still helping him. Why would these folks in leadership on the Republican side help someone who there were written reports saying that he was a fraud? Well, hi, Joy. Uh, I would say this. I think uh, the reason that happens is, <laughs> I think the reason that happens is winning is more important than fact. It's that simple, right? I was, you know, when I was running for office, I remember we had a, we had a, I had a district bigger than New Jersey, and I remember my consultant saying, "Hey, we got to make our message for 21 different counties in two different cities." And I remember that sometimes they're like, "Hey, Denver, don't say this here, don't say that there." I think that's evolved to let's just outright lie to win because it's more important than actually being truthful to the American people. And I think individuals in, in say, George Santos district, or his name is Anthony DeVolder, I mean, who knows? Um, I think that anybody in the DeVolder Santos district uh, should probably be appalled that you have an individual that has this kind of baggage. We should also be appalled that as far as the GOP is concerned, they allow this guy to get through the ranks because why? Winning is more important than the American people. And it's a problem I had when I was in office dealing with stuff like that. Did, did, were you aware when you were in office of the extent to which, you know, Russian oligarchs, Kremlin linked people, that sort of world seems to really have dug into the Republican Party in various places, whether it's into the NRA, whether it's finding ways to get money into campaigns, whether it's Trump. There, it, it feels like it's like, oh, OK, another Russia thing. You know, it, it, it does seem like there's a focus on the Republican Party um, from the Kremlin, or, or or does it that seem coincidental to you? Oh, it's not coincidental. You know, Victor Vexelberg is an equal opportunity influencer, right? I mean, this isn't something that's new. <laughs> uh, but when you know, when you see the individuals out there, you know, that have links, you know, to Russian cousins or things of that nature, you think his staff would be trying to vet, you know, uh, who was actually giving him money. Now, listen, you do get a lot of donations. It's hard to track everything, but I have to say, this is uh, probably stands out. I would say it probably stands out. My guess is he probably got a couple calls from Intrader. There's no way that Santos didn't know that he was getting these type of donations. Um, but when you're looking at influence, uh, influence peddling in the Capitol is massive. I think right now it's worse than ever before. And I think everybody tries to hide it. Uh, and I think a lot of these individuals, you look at George Santos, he's making $174,000, Joy. He's getting per diem, right? He's getting hotel yep. and meals. So he's he's probably making, you know, overall yep. over $200,000 a year. And he got elected because he is so good at lying, 
Uh, he just misrepresented everything about himself. And again, I think it's just absolutely lousy uh, that the American people have to put up with morons like that. And he probably feels confident because gerrymandering means you just have to get in once, right? You only have to win one election. And then by and large, unless the party acts against you, Madison Cawthorns you, you come back in regardless of how your, the voters in your district feel. I, I want to play this for you because this is just actually, we don't really hear, San, uh, hear Santos or Devaldo or whatever his last name is very much. Here he is literally telling a story that isn't true about his supposed volleyball prowess. Take a listen. I actually went to school on a, on a volleyball scholarship. I, you did? I, knew, I did, yeah. Um, when I was in Baruch, we were the number one volleyball Did you graduate team, from Baruch? But, uh, did you graduate from there? Yeah. So did I. I did. I did. Look, I sacrificed both my knees and got very nice knee, replacement, uh, knee replacements from oh, wow. HSS playing volleyball. That's how serious I took the game. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how serious you're taking politics as well. Remember this name, folks. George Santos. Denver, okay, this is how good it gets. It appears that he stole this story from his former boss at Linkbridge, who actually did play volleyball on a scholarship at Baruch. It's like he just stole his life. It would like be, it would like me saying, hey, Joy, guess what? I was a professional volleyball player with my eight inch vertical leap. Right. And I mean, does, does, does that does that pass any common sense meter at all that George Santos is a volleyball player? He might have been the manager. I've seen a lot of volleyball managers. He, he does fit the profile of a volleyball manager. Um, and the fact is, you know, the only thing about Baruch that was true is probably how he pronounced it. And I think that's what it's a joke. And we have someone like this actually representing the United States of America, sitting in Congressional Hall, actually voting on legislation that lied about playing volleyball. And by the way, anybody who bought that line, looking at the guy, knowing what the athletic build of that individual was, I think they also have to be called into question at this point. I mean, it's uh, it's like we're living in, it's like I'm taking crazy pills. I, I, I don't know what the hell's going on here. And he, and he will be one of the votes deciding whether we go over the debt limit. Congratulations, America and New York. Uh, former Republican Congressman Denver Riggleman. Ooh, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Happy MLK Day. And still ahead. Ever moved out of your old place and into a new one? It's a nightmare, right? Sorting through all your stuff, trying to figure out what to bring and what to leave behind. Now imagine your old place was the White House. We'll be right back. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. For most of our nation's history, when a presidency comes to an end, the president's White House departure has been a mundane process. 
There are bags and boxes to pack, letters to compose, goodbyes to White House staff and to the permanent staff of the residents, you know, the people who've looked after you and your family for four or eight years. There's also the matter of sorting out what goes with you to your home, your library, your presidential foundation, and what stays behind as the property of the American people. That process under President Obama and his then Vice President Joe Biden is now under scrutiny, but not in the way it would be four years later when Trump would lead the White House only reluctantly after losing his bid for a second term and only after an attempted coup. And it is that seditious exit that makes the difference between the Biden paper scandal and the Trump catastrophe so glaring. The difference, in fact, is as stark as the difference between the two men. In Biden's case, a handful of documents with classified markings were found at his D.C. private office, as well as his private home in Delaware. And when an aide with the proper clearances did a more thorough search, additional items were found. These items were not even missed by the National Archives. In fact, it was the Biden team that alerted them that they were missing at all. In Trump's case, we're talking not only about top secret material, including information on the nuclear capability of a still unnamed country, but also a year and a half of obstruction that was so blatant and so aggressive, a judge wound up issuing a search warrant for Trump's home, which doubles as a paid golf club. This is the difference between misplacing a friend's car keys and stealing their car. The U.S. media may be unable to help themselves for clamoring for a chance to both sides these presidents. But you really can't compare these two cases without considering the plot to overturn the election. And joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Alabama School of Law and Democratic strategist James Carville. And uh, James Carville, I do want to start with you, because right now there are some stories talking about the, you know, the annoyance of the president at some sloppiness of aides that did this and some annoyance of Democrats at the White House because this is happening at all. Because, you know, there is the sense, and maybe it's a sense of of people like myself, that blurring these two stories will blunt the Justice Department's will when it comes to acting, when it comes to Trump. What do you think? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate the point out that the national press can't help but make fools of themselves. Uh, It happened in Whitewater. It happened in the email scandal. And this happened now. I can't stop these people. It's my my, my anointed job in the world to stop the national press from making a fool of itself. The White House response should be this and only this. The president is cooperating fully with the special counsel. He expects everyone in his administration to do the same. End of story. No car bets. No, it was in this box or that box. He is. We're thoroughly doing this. The special counsel has an investigation to run. President Biden has a country to run. Get on with it. You're not going to stop these people from making fools of themselves. I promise you, Joy. You can try. I congratulate you. But I I got more experience (laughs) in this than most people. It's it's not going to work. No, no, no. Well, maybe I just have PTSD from her emails. You know, I mean, Joyce, it feels like it is there's a but her emails quality to this to me, because the thing is, is that what you had with Trump was so blatant. And I can't stress enough. We're talking about withholding classified documents after attempting not to leave office at all. We're talking about somebody who attempted to stay in office and did so with the help of an armed vanguard that busted into the Capitol, shat on the floor and beat up police officers, leaving five people dead, including one among them. And so I feel like when you look at the context of that, of this is somebody who didn't want to leave office and then did everything he could and directed his aides on things to take. Let me play Rudy Giuliani real quick. This is Rudolph Giuliani saying that in the beginning stage of the administration, he told him, take 
classified documents. Take a listen. I was vetting other people when he first became president and their tax returns. He had some very rich people and they had some very big tax returns. Oh, my I goodness. didn't take. Listen to this. This is my training on top secret. I didn't take him out of Mar-a-Lago. He told me, oh, take him home with you. Not going to take Wilbur Ross's tax returns home with me. I could misplace them. You can say you can say whatever you want about Joe Biden. I highly doubt he has that kind of cavalier attitude toward classified documents, Joyce. So in your mind, do you discern a difference in these two cases? So I think there's obviously a big difference. And as you point out, Joy, it emanates from the different approaches that these two men had for governing. One has enormous respect for the Constitution and the rule of law, and the other one doesn't. In terms of the two cases, they each get judged on their facts. And again, I think you're correct to point out that there are some fine line subtleties here. And Republicans have certainly tried to make the two cases comparable in a way that might blunt their impact. But when prosecutors look at these cases, and these are career prosecutors, we have on the one hand in the Biden case, a Trump appointed uh, Republican United States attorney from Maryland. Ironically, in the case of of the Trump investigation, we also have someone who served as an acting U.S. attorney for part of the Trump administration. So there are reasons to have confidence, I guess, in both cases, if you're a Republican, in the integrity of those investigations. And the standout difference is a, a trajectory of obstruction of justice. Trump even went so far in court pleadings in the 11th Circuit to claim that the documents in his possession were his, that they were his personal items, that he was entitled to keep them. And that's a, a sharp contrast to Joe Biden. We may ultimately learn that there was sloppiness. There may even be more documents that turn up in the course of the investigation. What's absent is a willful intent to retain those documents illegally. And, and that's what the dividing line between prosecution and no prosecution, that's where that line is. But, you know, and, and James, and I, I totally agree with that and totally understand that Joyce is so great at explaining these things and targeting me down. But I remember that same set of facts being true for Hillary Clinton. And, and the attitude was, this is a chance to get her. And what, what at least it felt like to me was that James Comey buckled to that pressure and 11 days out from an election and then three days out from election felt like he needed to act in a way that ultimately was political. This is uh, James Comer, and he is the chairman of the Oversight Committee. Let me let you listen to what he has said about this. We don't know exactly what uh, Trump has versus what Biden has. At the end of the day, my biggest concern isn't the classified documents, to be honest with you. My concern is how there's such a discrepancy in how former President Trump was treated. We do know what Trump has. We know a lot of what Trump has. We do not know what Biden has. But he's now been, at least he's been honest. His concern is there's a discrepancy in how former President Trump was treated. This is all about revenge for the search of Mar-a-Lago, the end. Well, I'm hardly Joyce Vance when I actually graduated from law school, but I, you know, is, don't know much about it. There's an intent between absent-mindedness and criminality. Okay, it's not they're not two equal things, or, or you, you know, unintentionally doing something. And I go back, and what you said it's going to come out just this way. All of the email and the New York Times going nuts and the whole press. There was not one single classified thing on on Secretary Clinton's email. Zero, none. You got to understand that. Whitewater, 
They, we said it was a forty-seven deal. It lost forty-seven thousand dollars. I think it was forty-eight thousand two hundred. That was it. And yet they're going to do the same thing over and over again. And Democrats just need to say we're cooperating fully. And, and look, everybody has a right to the Fifth Amendment. You don't have the right to work in this administration and take the Fifth Amendment. We want to get this thing done. We want to help this guy here because we know at the end of the day, there's nothing here. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we can do a whole media segment on the idea of trying to be really aggressive when it's a Democrat to balance out what people feel like, well, maybe it's something unfair. No, Donald Trump really did the things. He really actually did the things. That's why we do these stories, not because we have something about Donald uh, Trump. Anyway, Joyce Vance and James Carville, thank you very much. Up next, how Martin Luther King Jr.'s goal of unfettered access to the ballot box remains unrealized and what is being done to make it a reality. We're back in a second. Today, as we celebrate the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it's also important to remember that many of the same battles he fought 60 years ago are still being fought today, one of the most prominent being voting rights. This time last year, President Biden gave a passionate speech in Georgia, vowing to pass legislation that would undo Republican suppression tactics and make it easier for all Americans to vote, saying, quote, I will not yield. 365 days later, none of the sweeping voting rights measures the president championed were able to garner the necessary 60 votes to pass the Senate. And now, with the new Republican House majority, the odds of getting anything through are even slimmer. The president addressed these ongoing challenges in a sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church yesterday, but this time taking a more subdued approach. But at this inflection point... We know there's a lot of work that has to continue on economic justice, civil rights, voting rights, and protecting our democracy. I get accused of being an inveterate optimist. I call that the Irish of it. We're never on top, always stepped on, but we are optimistic. Like Dr. King was optimistic. Folks, uh, as I said, progress is never easy. But redeeming the soul of the country is absolutely essential. Joining me now is Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, and Gary Chambers, civil rights activist who was the Democratic Senate nominee in Louisiana last year. Thank you both for being here. And Latasha, I do want to start with you, my friend. You were in the um, you were in the church at Ebenezer Baptist when the president delivered those remarks. I wonder what the what the the feeling was when you talked to folks afterwards and your own feeling about you know, this president's, you know, sincerity and how hard he's willing to work to get voting rights passed and whether he thinks it's even possible now. You know, I think it's really interesting. I had, I really responded to the speech differently than I would have imagined. One, I've been a staunch advocate for voting rights and have even protested the president. And what was really interesting yesterday, what I felt that I thought he did an excellent job is centering what this is really about. This really is about our humanity as a nation and that fundamentally we have to lean into that. And so I say that because I think that there were people who wanted to hear him 
you know, be more political. And then there were those of us, I, myself, I wanted, I think part of what we're fighting up against right now is it's not that our politics are going to save us, it's our humanity that's going to save us. And that we have to really recognize that literally our politics have to be driven by those values of humanity, that here we are almost 70 years, we're in this struggle that we're still having this debate in this nation that claims that it is the strongest democracy on earth around making sure that we have a adequate access to people to the ballot. And so we have to really come up, we're coming face to face to the hypocrisy in this nation. We're coming face to face where we can blame a political party, political actors. But the truth of the matter is if voting rights is to happen, that the people have to demand, we have to organize and we have to literally be relentless in demanding that we have voting rights in this nation. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it is so true. And Gary Chambers, this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on with uh, with Latasha, because I watched your campaign and was amazed by your tenacity uh, in trying to urge uh, black voters in Louisiana, which has one of the largest black populations in the country and in the South. And you put up this video on your Instagram talking about the 10 percent of the 900,000 some odd eligible voters who came out. And I know you talked to a lot of people and traveled your state. What do you think was behind that? Um, and how do you think we can change it? Well, thank you for having me, Joy. And Latasha, I'm praying for you still. Um, for us, it is really just a deep understanding of where we are as a people and the investment that has happened in our state. Uh, Louisiana is the second blackest state in America. We have over 900,000 registered black voters, 1.2 million eligible black voters. But the Democratic Party nationally spent no money in Louisiana. Uh, the state party here is led by someone who uh, does not believe a black man can win statewide. And until we get fundamentally down to the level of understanding what it takes for candidates to be successful all across the Deep South, we're not going to give President Biden or any Democratic president the margins and the numbers that they need in the Congress as well as in the Senate to be able to pass meaningful legislation. We've got to be able to look at the Deep South and see that as center ground for the Democratic Party to expand its base. We've got to be able to talk to people, not just in election years. Uh, I'm launching a new effort this year to talk about civic engagement, civic for the people, so that we can go out and literally just educate people. And Natasha understands that so many of our people are disengaged with politics because there's just not a basic fundamental understanding of what are these people doing. We see it on TV and Joy, you do a beautiful job of articulating the details, but there's a deeper dive needed for many people just to fundamentally understand what it is when we're asking them to get into the ballot box and go vote. And no, absolutely. Amen. And, you know, this is your life's work, Latasha. And, you know, one of the things that I love about what you're doing is that you you don't let go of the South and that you're constantly talking about the potential and power of the Southern black vote. Um, so talk about reengaging that, because that is where the civil rights battle was won. And yet it does seem like sometimes the Democrats look past the South and say that's not a region where we can win. And so we're not going to organize there. I will say that until the South is shifted. Until we literally, we have to really recognize that the roots of racism actually have grown and buried themselves deep in the South. When we're looking at right now, when we're looking at the national political landscape, that's been shaped by the Southern strategy, right? When we look, if you go back and you read about the Southern strategy and you look at what is happening right now, 
play by play by play. That's what we see in act. And so what we've been saying, those of us that have been working in the South, we're saying that you can't afford to write off of Louisiana or Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi. Those are the states that often what you've seen is you've seen white nationalists and racism. Races, actually, that's where they built their base. It is not by accident, and I say this often, that Ronald Reagan, when he launched his campaign, he was in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That when Donald Trump launched his campaign, it was Mobile, Alabama. Those are two states so far away from their home state, but they recognize that that's where they could do the dog whistle, that they could actually create white fear. They could actually be able to send those dog whistles out and really be able to create a campaign based on fear and the consolidation of white power. And so what we have to recognize that if we want the America we desire, we deserve, we're going to have to step up and do the work. If today is Dr. King's day, then we have to have a real honest reflection and assessment of how we are actually fighting for democracy and standing in the space, not leaving that to activists, but the corporate sector in America literally has to step up and do the work. The business, all of the business sector that we have Amen. to really recognize moment it is. Amen. Latasha Brown, whom we all love, um, and the great Gary Chambers. Keep at it. It's great to be in your state, sir. Thank you both. And we'll be right back. Thank you. As we observe Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I am inviting you to join me and my colleague friends Chris Hayes and Tremaine Lee tomorrow night for a special town hall right here in New Orleans. It's called A National Day of Racial Healing, and it's sponsored by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. The town hall will take place here in the amazing Studio B. We'll be talking about the recent rise in hate speech across America and how we can make strides toward becoming a more just and equitable society. That's tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on MSNBC. And that is tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.